This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anita Heiss, Professor Anita Heiss, welcome to Better Reading. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on this podcast. Do you know, I can't believe, because you and I have known each other for a long time, right? You know, we keep running into each other at, at festivals, at launches, all over the place. And then I thought, well, surely we've done a podcast with Anita, but we hadn't. No, I didn't want to point it out to you, Cheryl. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> Do you know, there are some people that you know in your life and mm. every time that you see them, they make you laugh and smile. That's you for That's me. That's you. But we don't need to tell your listeners you what comes to mind when I think about you and your need for caffeine <laughs> in a country town and where the lattes are. No, no, I'm going to tell that story. Can I just tell that story? Because I'm going to defend myself and my listeners, they know that because I tell them often that I start the day with my coffee and toast, right? I can't function without coffee and toast. So they know that. And here we were. Where were we? We were in Gundagai. We were in Gundagai. Wales, Radri country. Yeah, we're launching your book. I was lucky enough to be there and I'm stressed about waking up in the morning trying to find coffee and toast and you think it's hilariously funny and then I get to the coffee shop and you're there before I am. Well, can I just say, to be fair, I didn't think it was funny. I was a bit embarrassed by your your passion for finding where can we go, what time, oh, no, how far away is that? And I was going, is this woman for real? What, we're in New South Wales. Surely she can go for one day without coffee and toast. And surely enough, you know, uh, Kaz and I went for a walk. It was freezing for the listeners. It was, I don't know, the wind chill factor was extraordinary. It's so cold. And so we went for a walk. We go, There's a cafe. And sure enough, we were sitting there nice and warm and toasty when you walked in. That's right. And I thought, aha, you were, uh-huh. you were berating me and there you were before I got there. Now, let me introduce you. Anita Heiss is an award-winning author of non-fiction, historical fiction, women's fiction and children's books. She was born on Gadigal land in Sydney and is a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales. She is a lifetime ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. She's also a professor of communications at the University of Queensland, amongst other roles. I often think people like you don't sleep much. Do you sleep much? I don't sleep much. I like sleep. I'll probably have a nap this afternoon because I've been up since before five. Yeah. I did wonder though, like if you've got a kids or a partner or a pet, like how much time does that take up? Because I don't think I could have fit any of those in. Now I don't I don't I don't have those either. I've got a pet, I've got a dog, but that's not my CV. 
I don't do that much. I think I'd like your listeners to write into into you and, yeah. and tell me how many hours I need to set aside a week if I am serious about having at the age of 53 finally the great love of my life. I'm still mm-hmm. waiting for him to arrive. Mm. So I'm trying to pack all these things in because I've told my girlfriends once he finally does, they've had me for decades, then I'm just going to go and, I don't know, mm. have love, be loved. Oh, and you deserve it. But it does take up a lot of time, so be careful. <laughs> I'm getting up at 3 a.m. then. That's right. Okay, so uh, I'm going to let you pronounce this because I never get the pronunciation right. So your latest novel is Billa. Billa. Yes. I'll do it, then you do it. Billa Yarudang. Billa Yarudang. Alang. Alang. Duray. Duray. Billa Yarudang Alang Duray. Beautiful. It's much loved with our readers, much loved. Makes me happy. Yeah. Because I wrote that story. All readers have obviously read it, obviously. For those of you who don't know, Billa means river and Yarodang means dream and Galang is the plural, so that means many dreams and Duray is the action of having the dreams. So Mm. easily translated to river of dreams. And I'm glad your readers have enjoyed the novel, Cheryl, because I, I, I wrote it from my heart. And I wanted it to touch the hearts of, you know, readers everywhere, mainly in Australia, obviously, because that's who I want to know the story, but readers everywhere. Tell us the story. So the story opens with the Great Flood of Gundagai in 1852, which is why we were in Gundagai. During that period of, in June of 1852, that town flooded over three days. It had flooded previously. People had drowned, died previously, but this this flood it actually became the greatest natural disaster in Australian history, where a third of the town drowned over the period of time. There was about two hundred fifty in the population then, so we're looking at about eighty people. Eighty people lost their lives, mm-hmm. and very few. There was maybe three buildings standing, from from what I remember. So that's one part of an extraordinary story that Australians should know about. But the other side of the story, which is you know my interest and passion, was telling the story of the the Wiradjuri heroes, Yari and Jackie Jackie, who with two other men, Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, went out on bark canoes over those three days to save local people. So um, the two men, Yari and Jackie Jackie, between them saved, I understand, 59 lives. And when you think about it, though, they, they were out on bark canoes. It only held one person. So they one at a time in raging floodwaters, torrential rain in the dark of night. They went out and one by one they would put people, one you know, person on their canoe and get them back to shore and so forth. And so when I learnt this story, I thought, how is it that every single Australian does not know the story of heroism? It was unveiled in June of um, 20, there was a statue unveiled in Gundagai on the main drag, Sheridan Street, uh, with some beautiful plaques telling the story of so forth of the Great Flood and thought I, I wasn't there but my family were there, family from Wagga and Brungle and Tumut, family who are from that area, and they I watched it all unfold on social media and I thought, how don't Australians know this story? Every not everybody, but most people know the dog on the tucker box, a Gundagai. Most people know the song on the road to Gundagai. But this story is a story um, of heroism that all Australians should know about. So I knew that my story would start there, but I had no I had no idea where it would go from there except that I wanted it to be, eventually I wanted the story to be a story of women, life for Aboriginal, Wiradjuri women and non in non-Indigenous women on Wiradjuri country in the 18, mid-1850s, 18, 60s and so forth. So then we see the story unfold. It moves to Wagga and through the we see the story through the eyes of Wagga Dine, who is a fictional character, Yari's daughter, 
and her life as a servant under the Masters and Servants Act and and what plays out on country in Wagga for her um, as a servant, as a friend or a companion to Louisa Spencer, who's a Quaker, uh, her first experience of love. And I think this is one of the great joys of writing fiction. You can create that great love that you wish you had. And I created a character, Yinjimara, which is a Wiradjuri word that means respect and to honour. And I know a young, beautiful young man called Yindi in Wagga. His mother is one of my language teachers. And um, I wanted to show through these characters our resilience, uh, our strength, our dignity and our pride, uh, our work ethic, and also our knowledge of land that has been ignored for centuries and, and only recently with the bushfires in Australia has the acceptance of needing to listen to Indigenous peoples and knowledge around particularly cultural burning and so forth. Um, I wanted to, to demonstrate that through the story and also I, I'm a hopeless romantic. You know, my people who've read my work will know that I often tell a story through a love story. So I use the story of Yindi and Wagadine to, to tell the story of Wiradjuri life on country during that mm. time period. So it's, it's, a, it's a story of heroism and homecomings really. Mm. But also too, I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's a beautiful story, but it's also a story that I know it's fiction, but the historical accuracy is was so enlightening for me. And I think back at growing up in Sydney and and learning history, Aboriginal people must have been so present in every major historical event, but were never ever mentioned. But you're absolutely right, Cheryl. I'm glad you flag that now. It's the reason, or one of the reasons, why. I write historical fiction because we're, um, I want to write us back into a space where we either haven't ex- been present, as you say, yeah. or been misrepresented altogether, or been misrepresented or not present at all. And both equally is awful. As bad as the other. Yeah. And uh, my view is, and I think one of the good things about having written Billy Yada Dungalung Duray is it's given me a greater platform to talk about uh, Australian literature Australian historical fiction and the responsibility of not only authors but of publishers to understand and and recognise their role in truth-telling in this country. And no publisher in this country should kid themselves that that they are publishing the great Australian novel if it does not include somewhere in that story the recognition that that story is set on to the traditional lands of somebody. Mm. And that everywhere, that if it's a historical novel, that everywhere that those characters are walking, and even today, even a novel set today, everywhere that characters are walking, there is a first language and it's not English. Mm. And I think for me that became more obvious. We're writers, we're just writing, blah, 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 got a plan, got a plot, got all this, got to get this down. And only after it's written do you come to realise the impact that that can have on certain areas. And for me, obviously, it's language. And so I think increasingly, I hope increasingly we will see more First Nations voices be amplified in the space of historical fiction. Um, because I honestly, because I we we research and do methodology better because we grew up with it, we know how to, speak, how to do it. And but I, I, there has to come a point where non-indigenous authors feel comfortable and knowledgeable and understand that they have a responsibility also to tell a complete story. And if they are uncomfortable or if they don't know uh, who the people are, I mean, show that in their characters. Have their characters say, oh, I, we know there were people here before, or, you know, show that, play that ignorance out in the characters. But as you've mentioned, you know, all those stories that have happened and particularly in, you know, 19th century, our people were so obvious 
particularly mm. in country towns. Also from the perspective of readers, because, you know, Better Reading is a community of readers, they mm. want to hear those stories. For a long time, I think I was, when I started up Better Reading, and I'm be- being brutally honest here, I didn't really think about that and whose stories that we were sharing. And, you know, one morning it just dawned on me that, no, I'm only telling white people's stories. I'm only, and they're fiction. For some reason, that's what we was being offered to us and that's what we were taking. And I went into the office and I said, you know, to the guys, no, we're going to change this. We trust our readers. Readers are smart. Readers have empathy and readers want to really read about the truth. And I said, and so now we're going to go and seek it out because it's not that readily available. We're going to seek it out. And now it's just become part of what we do. And I'm super proud of that. But also I'm more proud of the readers who take it, who love it, who talk to me about it because it's their lives. You know, our lives are diverse. I think all Australian authors need to acknowledge that our readers are intelligent, yes, capable and engaged and interested and relish that, you mm. know, and I think I learned that a long time ago when I saw, you know, in 2007 I wrote a chick lit novel. I didn't even know what chick lit was, right, in Not Needing Mr. Right, and it was so successful so quickly. Within six weeks the publisher saying, oh, we need another one because it was the first time that readers of, you know, for whatever labels we give it, commercial women's fiction, popular women's fiction, we're reading about the lives of First Nations women who did lots of things like other women. They shopped and they drink tea and they had champagne. Oh, God, and they have periods and they have a group of core group of friends. And they were seeing themselves on the page, but they were also seeing the complexity of our lives on a day-to-day basis as well and that we're funny and sexy and savvy and smart and all the things that other women are. Can I, I just interrupt you there to say I was at that launch? Clay Valley Hotel? Yes. Oh, that was that was Valentine's Day, best Valentine's I've ever had. It was so, I remember walking in. And 200 just, people. So like, glamorous and so beautiful. It was great. They're the days when publishers through, <laughs> well, I paid for half of it, I had a band and everything. I used my wedding money. Oh, did you? <laughs> you are well, money well spent. I never get money. Have a, Sorry. Yeah, Where were you before? So I back, back, in, um, back in so doing not meeting Mr. Right and realising. It's interesting because when that came out and the follow-up was avoiding Mr. Right, there was, it's a fantastic review. It was by an academic and I've, I use it, I've used her quote in my memoir, Am I Black Enough For You? Because it says something like, you know, readers of, an, of Anita Heiss's nonfiction, you know, won't be impressed or whatever the language, but with this and it's true you know I got I was criticized for dumbing down my work and everything but what they didn't realize I had had a complete strategy I had a strategy that was I want to reach women in book clubs or read novels on the beach and so forth and I want them to start thinking about the issues that I think all Australians should be thinking about whether it's black deaths in custody or the anti-intervention or intellectual property rights how do I do that well I write a book that brings us together that makes us the same and that's stories about relationships, relationships with our partners or relationships with our friends or our mothers, and then weave that through the storyline. And then that proved to be incredibly successful. And I think avoiding Mr. Wright, which is set in Melbourne, where the character Astral travels when she has sex in her dreams, when she eats at a restaurant in Melbourne. That research was very difficult. I ate in so many restaurants. I ate in every <laughs> shop on Ackland Street, St Kilda, because the character lived there. Yeah. Um, and I'm a method writer. Uh, <laughs> I think that is the most, that book, 
Like that is the most, uh, this is my grammar's not right around, you can fix yeah. it. The most held library book in the in the public libraries of my, I've got 18 books and that is the most popular in public libraries, is this book wow. set in Melbourne about an Aboriginal woman who wants to, to be the Minister for Domsaria, which is the Department of Media, Sports, Arts, Refugees and Indigenous Affairs because we're always clumped together. And the, the albatross around her neck is this man who's madly in love with her. And so it's interesting. We... When you start to look at that, like that strategy really paid off for me because, you know, now my books are in Big W and Tajay and Kmart and the airport. And my nonfiction PhD textbook, you maybe sold 400 copies because the reality is, which I still am glad I did because it gave me, uh, I still look at, reference it all the time. It's on Aboriginal literature and publishing. But the reality is, the figure I heard like a decade ago was the average academic essay is read by six people and there are other academics. So I know I am a professor of communications, but I work in the creative space. I go, what, what is the point of that material? Like yeah. why are people spending angsting and hours and time and resources to create something that isn't going to reach a, a broader market is my view. I want women to be talking about the things that I am passionate about. Because men buy these books too, obviously. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I want to go back to where it all started, to how Professor Anita Heiss became Professor Anita Heiss. Tell me about where you grew up and how it is that you came to writing. I was born Digital Darawal country out in Milaparus, strategically placed between Long Bay Jail, Malabar Sewerage Works, and at the time it was ICI, it's now Oregon Industrial Estate. Little Cunningham Street, Aboriginal mother from Cowra, Austrian father from a little village called St. Michal in the Lunga. How did they meet? My father got an assisted passage from Austria. He went to Tasmania and spent two years paying off his fare with other Austrians. He was, you know, and practised carpentry and he came, then went to Sydney, was staying in a hostel in Villawood and my mum was waitressing with an Austrian lady called Lee and she took my mother to this party in Pagewood where the Austrians were. They met there and my father just became obsessed with my mother instantly and stalked her pretty much and she was living in Redfern with her auntie, my great aunt Mary at the time and their first date was a Greek movie with English subtitles, which is hilarious because wow. neither was my mother, my father didn't speak English. And my and so 
you know, he would sit, my father would sit outside Australian Hall in Elizabeth Street, which is now a heritage listed building. That was where the site of the Day of Mourning conference and protest happened in 1838, mm-hmm. where the Manifesto for Aboriginal Rights was first read out, uh, which led to the 1967 referendum. And so he, they would go dancing there in front of another quarry, so drink at the Crown Hotel, and at 10 o'clock, mum, mum says you had to wait because the men would wait till the pub was shut and then they'd go to the, and they'd dance, like, you know, in those beautiful dancing styles of the old days. My father would wait outside to either drive her home or follow her in, <laughs> on his motorbike <laughs> on the way home. She reckons the girls go, Elsie, is that Joe behind us? <laughs> anyway, um, and so they got married in St Vincent's Church in 1960. Yeah, and I was born in 1968, and had five had five children. And to the day he died, my mum, my my father just worshipped and cherished my mum. And they, you know, they had very traditional roles. The Austrians are very patriarchal, and he came from a very traditional little country town, little village. And that my mum says was quite difficult when she first went there. You know, that we have, didn't have the referendum. My father had to take my mother to get a passport to say that, you know, that she wasn't living under, uh, that he was taking care of her and so forth so she could get permission to get a passport to leave. And um, she learned to speak his dialect in this little Lungar dialect in his village in six weeks because nobody spoke English then. The men just said, mocks on schnapps, like, do you want schnapps? <laughs> The women, I'm told, frowned upon her because my father was, my father came to Australia, he was a bachelor when he got this, he was ironing his own clothes and men didn't do that on them and quite possibly they don't do it today in the town. (laughs) But, um, and my mum, you know, had this beautiful long black hair and she, you know, she was used to showering every day and that was, the whole cultural thing was very different. They thought, I found out later in life, because I've been to Austria quite a few times, very, very close to one of my cousins, who's like a sister to me, Sabini, that they all thought my mum was Tahitian because there was no concept of what an Aboriginal person was in Austria. And I was quite surprised by that. She said, look, and anything below the equator, anything outside of Austria, you know, people didn't know yeah. anything below the equator really never got mentioned. So we just saw this long black hair, this brown lady, and we thought she was this Tahitian. Interestingly, I was in the village in the year 2000 when they had the reconciliation march across Harbour Bridge. Or they had marches around the country, as you will remember. Yes. And it was all, actually it might have been in Clarkenford on that day, but I went back to the village and I was teaching and all over the, the Austrian media on the news and in the newspapers was this march. And my cousin was saying, this is extraordinary. We very rarely hear anything about Australia. That really spoke volumes about the impact that that political slash social justice slash just general community um, desire for change in Australia was in, was had impact on media around the world. Anyway, so that's how they met and they had me. Okay. And so tell me about you. So um, you went to school and, you know, went, like, talk to me about identity and what yeah, your sure. experience. Yeah. I went to a little Catholic school called St Andrews at Malabar. There were... You know, there was no multiculturalism. This is the 70s. This is when Kingswood Country was on TV and Ted Bullpit would call Bruno a bloody wog and Neville the statue would get run over by the hold and everybody would laugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm familiar with that. You know, and so that was a time where those sort of that sort of stereotyping and, and language was completely normal. So I was in a, in primary school, so the only couriers that I knew of were my family. Yeah. And there was another Brown family, but they were, they were actually, from New Caledonia. Right. And so I remember being on the playground when I was about five and my eldest sister's friends, my eldest sister saying, 
oh, yeah, my sister's really smart. She can count to 100. And so I like a performing monkey, I count to 100. And, and the girls go, wow, you're a really good counter for an ABO. And what, oh, wow. in, in hindsight, I go, that was, it really, it, even today it demonstrates this idea that we're not expected to be smart, that we're always mm-hmm. expected to be in this deficit position and not to achieve academically or socially or any other way. And so I don't remember going home, but the next day I'm in the classroom and mum's there and the teacher's there and the teacher's going, point out the one that said it. So I was a bit, I was a dobber at school, but this was my journey into, I guess, challenging racism. And then I remember, because I knew, I didn't even know what the word was but I knew that that was an ugly word that you didn't use yeah and then uh, I used to walk home from school and these are the days when kids walk to school right yeah yeah walked home from school like a kilometer it would have been easily over the hill and and there was um kids from the public school which was in my my family home and there's these you know three or four boys and there's a big guy called Troy and I've written about him in am I black enough for you because I realized in my late 30s that a lot of what I was writing throughout my life was in reaction to how I was treated as a child and, and, and different treatment as I got older. But, like, they would sing out Abbo, Boom, Coon, Chocolate Drop and Cocoa Pop. And for your listeners, in case you don't know, these are all negative derogatory terms. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I'm a kid. I have no yeah. idea oh. why this is happening. I All I know that it's coming with venom. Mm. So I used to be quite scared walking down the hill, you know, and if I'd see them, if I could turn off earlier, turn in Blackson Street. And I remember saying to my mum, crying, because I don't know why this is going on, and she says, they're just, we're in the bathroom, and she says, they're just jealous, you've been kissed by the sun. And I literally believe at the time, (laughs) because I'm the only brown kid and I've got long, goldeny, blonde, brown plaits, the sun has puckered up and kissed me. Mm. and so I'm going, well, yeah, they're just jealous. I mean, so I'm all armed next time for that to happen. Of course, I don't say anything because they they were older than me. They, were, they would have been 10 or whatever, and they were big and they were boys. Yeah. Um, so there were a couple of moments during primary school that, aside from that one, but at the school were dealt with very quickly. And, you know, I went to Catholic schools mm. and, and racism or any, any form of behaviour that was not Christian-like, as it were, was not tolerated. So when I went to high school at St Clair's at Waverley, there was a couple of other Koori girls there. One was senior uh, and one in my form. But it was, the multi- it was very multicultural. It was loads of a Greek population and Italians and uh, Vietnamese and Chinese. So it was very multicultural. So I never saw race as an issue at that school and but again you would see yourself on a Saturday morning detention in full school uniform with stockings if you had behaved in any way shape or form that was offensive and disrespectful I mean I don't I'm not Catholic any my mother hates me saying this because she set up the Aboriginal Catholic ministry but I'm really grateful that I went through the Catholic system uh, because it gave me boundaries I mean I got suspended twice as it was imagine if I was anywhere else but uh, my poor parents And I work a lot in the Catholic system now with kids and running creative writing workshops. And I see that there is a difference in knowledge in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and society and our shared history. You know, I go into Catholic schools, most of the kids know whose country they're on. They know what the flag means. They might know a few words. Um, So I do, I think that the system... (laughs) The system necessarily so because of the damage that the churches across denominations have done in the past have a very strong social justice system. That means that there's um, a lot of work being done in the in the curriculum within the Catholic system today. So, um, you know, grew up in Maddo. My father, mum worked at the drive-in. So I, again, I would walk down to the drive-in and sit in the car by myself and watch movies. I mean, yeah, that well. one, oh, I know that's terrible. <laughs> 
<laughs> so when, at what point did you think you were going to be a writer? Oh, gosh, not it. Look, I didn't re- look, Cheryl, I didn't read. Listeners, I did not read when I went to school, so I never imagined I'd be a writer. I didn't read, read books. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had a reading age of 16 when I was 12 because yeah. uh, I was tested. I was very smart. Um, and then I went to, I never knew I was going to be a writer. I studied, did my PhD on Aboriginal literature and, and publishing with a comparative study between Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, Māori writers in Aotearoa and Native American writers in Canada. Still didn't think I was going to be a writer. I published one book in 96 as a re- in a reaction to all the books that I had to read at university by non-Indigenous people, some having never been to Australia, about Aboriginal society and culture. And I go, well, this is what it looks like. If we wrote about you, mm. this is what you look like through our lens, okay? Mm. And it was just meant to make a point. And I guess... I never, it wasn't until I did my PhD and I got hold of every single thing I could possibly get my hands on, all of Ani Ruby Lankin Beginnabies, all of Ujiri Knuckles, Jack Davis, Kevin Gilbert, everything I could get my hands on. I was like, my God, we have some amazing storytellers. And that inspired me not to read more, not even to be a writer at that point. I wrote Sacred Cows 96, Token Kuri was a self-published collection of poetry because I wanted to learn about the process of publishing uh, in 98. And then I got tapped on the shoulder by some scholastic, sorry, to do a historical novel, Who Am I, The Diary of Mary Talents, about the stolen generations. And that was really a springboard for me because I learnt, I mean, that, that came out in 2001, 20 years this year. It's had numerous reprints, four, three or four covers. It's published in, it's translated into French, Farsi, Spanish and Mandarin. And that's still taught in schools today. And I saw the power of writing, particularly Mm. writing about important issues that are for young people, but that novel's read by 70-year-olds. So for me, you know, how to take complex issues like identity yeah, uh, which I've done, and and then and because that that plays out in all of my work, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, of course, yeah. to complex issues. Well, it's not complex for us necessarily; mm. it's complex for other people. We don't sit around talking about identity; we talk about it when we're asked questions about it, and then how to translate that and simplify that for various audiences, whether it's you know kids in primary school or kids in uh, lower secondary, or upper secondary, or women you know women in book clubs or whatever, finding ways to reach certain audiences. How does a young woman who's expelled from school or suspended or whatever you were twice end up doing a PhD? <laughs> you just glossed over that. <laughs> no, so interestingly, when I look at my cohort at school, yeah, I mean, I was always studious. I wasn't, I was studious. I, I, I Were was you naughty? Bra- I was naughty. Yeah. I, I was thought I was funny. I think, yeah. was, I think I was cheeky. <laughs> I thought I was funny. I was quick-witted. Um, you know, I was the come from the working class sawdust covered combi father, um, mother working at the drive-in who wanted to fit in, who wanted to fit in with the Vaucluse, Rose Bay, Double Bay, Volvo driving crew. But they sent me to that school. So I'm yeah. glad for that. But um, I, it's interestingly because I gave the, like, the graduation address or for, um, for the school years later. Uh, and the, they, all the parents are there, and we're at the UNSW and the, Clan, the John Clancy Auditorium, I think it was called. And I'm and I and I started by saying, I know there's many people in the audience tonight that would think that I am the least likely role model for your children, having been suspended twice. I don't know if I told them it was because I was drinking at a school dance or that they I had been writing profanities in my school diary, but I said I'd been. I said, however, 
I know the difference between between right and wrong. I can sit with ministers in Canberra and I can sit with the old people in the in the dirt, you know, and I listed off all these things that I could do. And that came from a lifetime of making mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think I was the one that would be expected to get pregnant and, you know, probably, and I, I thought back then I was just going to get married anyway. I was engaged at 16 and, you know, and then I went to university and my whole life changed. And when I speak to young kids today, it's like, if you, even if you spend one year at university, because this is what the, the dean told me or told us on the first day, if you don't know where you want to be in life, a year here will not be a waste because you learn a whole lot of socialisation. You learn how to speak to people. You learn responsibility and so forth. And so, um, I, yeah, I, I'm probably the least likely success story from that group. And I haven't, I went to my year 10 in, in my 10-year, my 20-year reunion, and then I thought I can't go to another reunion. This is me. can't go to another reunion where I don't have a husband because in, in some circles that's what is important, you know. Yes. And interestingly, yes. Cheryl, someone who put, I saw this on Instagram the other day and it was a fantastic post. It was by a young woman, young um, First Nations artist, talking about how women who don't have children and uh, and don't have kids but express pride through their work, you know, on their timelines, get criticised for big noting. However, when people, when women put photos of their kids up, that's okay, but it's just a different kind of pride. I thought that was a really good point to make that we learn, we need to say that, you know, we, you know, we don't have this, but our life has this, and they're equally important because also not everybody can have kids. Yeah, and absolutely. You can't criticize people, one for choosing a different path, or they might not have had a choice. Yeah, yeah. I I, I feel that I made that conscious decision not to have children. Um, I went to uh, I studied for two years. I thought I was going to be a school teacher until I got to one of my pracs, and the teacher said to me, "You don't like children much, do you?" And I said, "I don't actually." <laughs> I'm feeling like I really probably not be in a classroom then, Cheryl. That's right. And she pulled me out and I ended up working in the bookshop. And that's what launched my career. That's right. I mean, it was a moment that had to happen. It was so, I still remember her because she was really blunt with me. And I'm thinking, what? And she said, there's a vacancy upstairs Mm. working in the bookshop. I think you should go up there. Look where I am, you know. Yeah, you had that person. And I had that, I had that person in Canberra. Her name was Louise Murata. And I was working, I got a um, a cadetship at the public, with the public service working for the Australian Institute. No, so the Australian. Australian, it was aid, Australian Institute of Development Abroad scheme or something. I can't remember. Then it became AusAid. Yeah. Anyway, it was 12 months. And I was, you know, again, cheeky, funny, doing things apparently that I wasn't supposed to do, but I didn't know. You had to write a memo to go to the toilet. Anyway, I didn't know how to write a memo. I just got a sticky thing and stick it on the computer. It's okay if I have a, <laughs> a day off tomorrow. I know you've got to remember. But she called me in her office one day and I was, and she said I was quite scared of her because she was powerful and smart, right? Yeah. Super smart. Mm. And that's why she was the director of policy. Anyway, she said, Anita, I think when your rotation or when your contract is up, you're on a Twitter tournament, you should really consider whether or not the public service is where you want to be. Right. Yeah, wow. And I was so offended by that because I felt like she was saying, you don't belong here. Well, she was saying it because then she went on to say, I think you should be writing novels, not. Oh, wow. It wasn't, but that wasn't even on my radar. Like the bookshop yeah. wasn't. Like, okay, saying, and then I saw her. So that was like 19, she's 1991. Yeah. 1990, she said that. 
I saw her in 2004 at an arts and activism conference in Braidwood, just outside of Canberra. She was in the audience and then I was having coffee and she was there. And I told her I was so upset about that. I was really offended. But you, you, are you like she saw something in me, yeah. like your person saw something in you that we didn't see. I was too young to see that in myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm forever grateful that I took her yeah. advice, forever grateful. And where I've landed uh, so far is exactly where I want to be. Yeah, awesome. Isn't that awesome? It was an amazing centre because I was studying early childhood and I was working at the Lady Gowrie Childcare Centre in Erskineville. Okay. You might have, it's, it's a learning institute as well as a long daycare centre. Yeah, yeah. It is something that had a huge impact on my life because even though I was Lebanese-Australian, I wasn't really aware of that multiculturalism was something we choose to do, that the acceptance of other cultures. And I walk into this childcare centre and they've got babies sleeping in trees, African style, and they've got kids sleeping in bunks. You know, it was, oh, the menus were so diverse and I really took to the centre. I loved it. And they had this bookshop upstairs that was full of, you know, white kids' books. And she said to me, you need to change it. And I worked there for the summer and that was it. That was the beginning of my career. Where it was did you, life changing. What was the next step from there? I went to London and I worked in a bookshop over there. Oh, as you do. London, that is the normal progression for anybody. Well, it was at the time because we were all travelling at that age, remember? We had that reciprocal, I don't know if that still exists, but that's why I was there. But even then, I mean, the only job I could get in the first couple of months I was there was a nanny and it was awful. I just really You know, like kids. Oh, I hated that job so much, I can't tell you. And when I went to resign because I finally got a job in a bookshop, the lady that I resigned with, the mother started smashing um, dinner plates on the floor. She was so like, happy. no, so oh. sad. <laughs> oh, because I'm happy she was great. And she's like, yeah. No, she, no. she didn't want me to like, leave. It'll be was, okay. She was smashing. Anyway, so that was that. But that's how my career started in the book industry. And, you know, we met because of that, right? I know uh, your listeners may not be interested in this. We met with the Get Reading campaign, didn't we? We did. Yeah, 2007. Yeah. You're good with years. I wouldn't have been able to place that. Yeah, because I know what book was on. I, my book, uh, Avoiding, it was uh, Not Meeting Mr. Right. Yeah, I knew of you for a long time, but I hadn't really met you. And I was kind of, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I was always looking at you. Well, I did speak to someone and say, I think, can you please, because this woman is odd. And then, remember, I chose you to be in the book that we produced. I think you, did you have something to do with Scholastic at Glebe as well, school? Did you ever do was. Yes, of course. I was on the board for years and years. Of course, I was on. Of course, you're on the board. And then I became chair of board, and I went to that school. I was going to say, <laughs> someone who hates kids end up on the board of a school. All right, because you went there. Yeah, it's great. School. Yeah. So I went there because uh, we grew up in Glebe, and I'm going to be really quick with this one. And I had no connection with the school whatsoever because I was a naughty kid too. I wasn't yeah. great, and I wasn't great academically. Um, but I had wonderful, wonderful teachers. Anyway, so I was walking down Norton Street one day as an adult. And I ran into a teacher, Chris Hutch, and she said, Cheryl, you know, I've seen that you're on, because I was doing book reviews on TV and whatever, and she said, you should come back to school and give back. And I said, oh, you know, (laughs) I hadn't really been back, whatever. Anyway, sure enough, she rings me a couple of days and I thought that they wanted money. Like I thought, oh, okay, do I make a contribution of sorts or whatever? And I'm sitting outside of the principal's office as an adult, still frightened, right? As if I've done something wrong. And she says, yeah, no, it never changes, does it? And she said, no, we need you to sit on the board. We need you to do actual work. And 11 years later, 
I did that for 11 years. It was great fun. I mean, I learned a lot. And you do, you grow through experiences like that, don't you? They should have the Cheryl Applewing there. Yeah, right. Well, I think you need to give them a couple of thousand dollars for that. But either way, it, it was really, it's a great institution. It's a great yeah. centre. My my sister's now there. She's the one of the vice principals. So. Wow, loads of Koori yeah. girls go there too. They do indeed. But loads of Koori girls were there when we were there. You oh. know, it's part of the school um, education system. But anyway, now listen, we've run out of time. <laughs> Because we both talked to you. Oh, because I've interviewed the interviewer. Yes, that's right. It's your fault entirely. But we'll talk. Have you got a, another book coming? I have got, can I tell you what, I've got so many exciting things. Can I tell you? Right. Yes. So uh, as we speak, I'm editing the 10th anniversary edition of Am I Black Enough For You, which is a yep. memoir. Yep. And that'll be out next April through Penguin Random House. Yep. I've got a kids' novel called Curry Princess coming out through Magabala in May of next year. Yeah. I have two book deal with Simon and Schuster. One is to do the kids' picture book version that we talked about in the pub that night at the Criterion. Yes. So we're doing the, the big flood. So um, that's due at the end of this month. And the artist for that will be illustrator is Samantha Fry. I chose her. It's wow. very excited because I love her picture books for Magabala, but that's coming out through Simon Schuster. But I'm also doing um, another historical novel with, with Simon Schuster called Derek Dereawada. And that means to rise up. And that'll that'll be an, an epic novel about resilience and resistance of Wiradjuri people in New South Wales over a hundred years span. And oh, I'm doing a book set at a rodeo called Red Dust Dreaming for Audible. I'm so excited. I've just been up to Rockhampton to, to a professional bull riding association invitational event. I do not support bull riding for the record, so not that it's my character, but so that's why I'm there. So that's going to be interesting because she's going to fall in love with a cowboy. Uh, and off to the Warwick Radio shortly. That novel's due in February and I think it's out later that next year. And then I'm doing uh, my my novel Titters, which came out through Simon and Schuster in 2014, um, I'm in the process of finalising the draft script for that, being uh, mentored by Jane Harrison. Your listeners will know her work from um, the play Stolen, which toured the UK and Australia, and also she wrote a novel called Becoming Curly Lewis. I recommend that's a YA novel. That will be performed through Le Boite. Oh, I reckon you're showing off because is that all you're doing? <laughs> Well, that's all I'm doing. I'm also looking for a husband. So anyway, oh. I'm not going to talk about what I'm doing because the list is nowhere near that long. So you, you interview all these amazing people like myself oh, yeah. and we are very, very grateful. So thank you very much. Anita, I'm going to have you back. We'll come back for the memoir. We'll talk Perfect. more about you. Up. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. 
Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.